Would you turn with me to 1 Peter, if you have a Bible with you this morning. 1 Peter. We've been in a series in the book of 1 Peter for quite a while, working through it carefully, verse by verse. And we've called this series Between Two Worlds. Why? Well, because the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians in the first century who were experiencing suffering and persecution for their beliefs. And apparently some were surprised by this. They were confused by this persecution and suffering. So Peter writes to recalibrate their expectations, in some ways to raise certain expectations, and in a sense to lower other expectations. He writes to tell them that the grace of God in Christ is, is better, more privileged, and more sure than they could ever fully realize. He writes to remind them that there are people with a foot firmly planted in the kingdom of Jesus and in the new world to come. But he also writes to remind them that they're pilgrims and strangers. They're sojourners, and so they still have one foot clearly in the present world, just as Jesus planned. So they're supposed to face trouble. They're supposed to have their faith tested. God's in it. He's using it. They'll come out the other side better for it. He writes to encourage them in God's grace and to give them perspective, to give them help for their pilgrimage. In some ways, 1 Peter is simply what the Christian life is, how to be a Christian, how to live out your faith, and how to live it out sometimes in a hostile world. We'll look at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. I'll back up just a few verses more than what we'll focus on today so that we get a running start and see some context. Look with me at 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 8. We pick up in the middle of a sentence. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe this is your word. We believe that it's a living word. We believe it's effective, and so we pray you would use it. We pray you would speak it afresh. We pray, Lord, you would convict where that's needed, that you would encourage and strengthen where that's needed. Lord, that you would, you would build up this church, 
that you would glorify Jesus, the one we've just read about, the one whose precious blood was spilt for the covering of our sins. Lord, we thank you for these gifts of grace that are described in 1 Peter, and we beg for your help to live them out, to see them in all their fullness and then to live in light of it. Lord, we need your help. We need you to do what only you can do. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see clearly and to be taught from your word by your spirit this morning for your glory and because Christ, our Savior, the sacrifice has died and is raised. Pray in his name. Amen. Well, our passage covers a few different themes, like the new birth, like love for each other, and growing together, growing in Christ. But the glue that holds all these themes together is the Word of God. This passage tells us what God's Word can do, what only God's Word can do. It tells us what God's Word is and what it does. Four things. First, the Word is life-giving. It's life-giving. Verses 22 and 23, back in chapter 1, There's a command to love which is central at the end of chapter 1. It's actually the only command. The command to love is central, but it presumes something. Peter gives two, you could say, bases or motivations for love. One before and then one after. So he says in verse 22, Having purified your souls, then love one another. And then look at verse 23. Remember, the end of verse 22 says, Love one another. Love one another since you've been born again. Having purified your souls and since you've been born again. Let's take each of those on their own. Having purified your souls. Our souls need purification, despite what you might think. Our souls need cleansing. Both our account with God... And our consciences, our account needs a washing, a cleansing, a removing of the guilt. He knows our sins. He knows our sins far better than we do. Our consciences need cleansing as well. We all know this, don't we? Proverbs says, the guilty flee when no one pursues. Why is that? Because we're all guilty. Why is it that you have a little turn in your stomach when you see a cop in your rearview mirror? Is it because you've been speeding? Probably not. Because you were speeding at some point. Because you do speed sometimes, right? And you're guilty. You know it. And so, oh, what? Oh, he's there. I might get in trouble. The guilty flee when no one pursues because they're guilty. We need a cleansing. Not, uh, not, not to deny our, our guilty consciences. Not to ignore our debt account. We need purification of our souls. Peter writes to those who have been purified in the deepest part of their being, their consciences, and their debt certificate, you could say. And how have they purified their souls? He says, by your obedience to the truth. Now what he means here is not obedience to all truth. It's not Christian living, obeying God's commands. That's good, that's right, but that's not what he means here. He means obeying the gospel invitation. That call to believe, to repent of sin, and trust in Christ's blood and righteousness alone. To acknowledge that you're a sinner. To acknowledge that Christ wasn't. But he was perfectly righteous. 
And he died in our place. The just one for the unjust ones. To call out to him and ask for that mercy. Or to believe, to trust, is to obey the truth of the gospel. Peter talks like this elsewhere in terms of faith being in this word obedience in a sense. Chapter 3, verse 1, look at that. Chapter 3, verse 1, here he's addressing wives who have husbands who do not obey the word. These husbands don't ignore their Bibles. They don't have Bibles. They don't care about Bibles. They don't believe yet. They're not Christians. That's what Peter means by they do not obey the word. The same in chapter 4, verse 17. There, Peter talks about the judgment that awaits those who do not obey the gospel of God. They don't obey the gospel, the gospel call to repent and to believe. That's exactly what Peter was talking about back in chapter 1, verse 2. Turn there. Chapter 1, verse 2, remember there he said that we've been foreknown by God, chosen by God. We've been sanctified by the Spirit. Literally, it's set apart by the Spirit. Set apart for salvation, drawn into this thing of a relationship with God. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This isn't just general obedience to Jesus or Christian life obedience. This is believing Jesus. This is following Jesus in faith for the very first time. There's a chronological progression in chapter 1, verse 2. You've been chosen. The Spirit wooed you in. You obeyed the call of Jesus and were sprinkled with his blood. Now, it may look like Peter is saying that we somehow purify our own souls. He says, having purified your souls. Usually, in the New Testament, this is a passive thing. Having been purified, and then it goes on. Here, Peter says, having purified your souls. It might also look like the purification is something we earn because it's by our obedience to the truth. But no. That's not what Peter means. It's clear. We've been purified by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. He died in our place. The just for the unjust. It couldn't be any clearer. We've been ransomed, as we read in verse 18, by the precious and spotless blood of Christ. He was righteous for us. He was spotless that we might be considered spotless. In verse 21, Peter says, Through him you are believers so that your faith and your hope are in God, not in yourself, not in your ability to purify yourself, not in your ability to obey the truth. Your faith and hope are in God. And further proof that Peter doesn't mean that we can earn our salvation through our obedience, let alone purify ourselves, is this thing called the new birth. The other motive, a reason, a basis for loving one another. The new birth He says back in chapter 1, verse 3, that it's according to God's great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now he brings it up again. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. What does this mean to be born again? Might have grown up in church and still not know what it means. You probably haven't grown up in America and not heard of it, though. 
Jimmy Carter was the first president to say he was a born-again Christian. Some people think a born-again Christian is a serious Christian. They're the ones who really mean it or something. Some people think of born-again as some kind of like fresh start or some sort of radical religious experience. He's a born-again Christian. He had this thing, this moment. That's why it happens so often in prison. Guys go into prison, and they come out born again because something happened in prison. It was a hard time. Well, that sometimes does happen. It really is a new birth experience that can happen in prison or outside of it. But But it's none of these things like I've been describing. It's something far more radical than this. The new birth or being born again is like your first birth, your physical birth, but it's a spiritual one. It's a heavenly one. It's a divine birth. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new world, a new person, a new nature. That's part of what baptism symbolizes. An old self dead, a new self raised up, buried with Christ, resurrected to new. An old world dying, a new world around you. We're part of a new creation in Christ. There's a realm transfer that takes place in the new birth. Colossians 1 says we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the light of his kingdom. And if we've been born again and born of God, then that implies something of a new parentage. Your first birth was of the perishable seed of your father. In the spiritual new birth, we are born again from the imperishable seed of God, which means we're his children And that's privilege, right? It means a new inheritance, a heavenly inheritance that's imperishable and incorruptible. It also has a functional value, too, if we're his children. It means we do what he does. It means we're in the family business. So be holy like your father is holy in love like he loves. But God must do it. Just like you didn't birth yourself You can't birth yourself into the kingdom. You can't birth yourself from above. Kids, your hope is in God, not in parents. Their seed is perishable. Only God has this imperishable seed. We're helpless apart from it. We're hopeless apart from his intervention. But when that happens, it changes everything. And it happens through the word. Notice in verse 23, we're born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. James 1 says something similar. That of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That means that the new birth isn't just this ecstatic religious experience. It's not just being zapped. The new birth happens in conjunction with the hearing of the word of God or the reading of the word of God. It's like God takes the word and he lights it on fire in our minds and in our hearts and then it's received and believed. But not just the word of God in general. Peter doesn't have the whole Bible in mind when he says we've been born again through the word of God. He has in mind the gospel The word of the gospel. That's clear by the end of verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
the good news that we referred to in the early parts of chapter 1. You've been born again. You have an inheritance now. That good news that we saw in verse 18, that you've been ransomed from your futile ways with the precious blood of Christ, the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but now has been revealed for you. And it's through him, your believers in God, so that your hope, your faith are in God. In the new birth, God lights all that kind of stuff on fire. We get it and we love it. We embrace it and we'll never be the same. If you don't have it, pray. Believe. If you believe, you truly have it. Well, God's word is life-giving, but secondly, God's word itself is living and lasting. If we said, how is God's word life-giving? The answer would be that it is uniquely living and lasting. It's not just an old book. It's living He says, living and abiding, as he says, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. It cuts soul and spirit in half. I don't even know what that means exactly, but that's that's penetrating, isn't it? it? It chops up joints and marrows of your soul. It discerns your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. God's word does this. It's not just an old book. It is old, but it's alive. And in the hands of God, it's a sword. And it cuts. And it heals, too. It's effective. And it's purposeful. Isaiah 55 says... As rain and snow come down from heaven and they don't return, but they water the earth and things grow by it, they have purpose, rain and snow, well, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth and it shall not return to be empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is self-enacting. If he speaks it, it's so. That's how this whole creation was made. He spoke, and it was. His word is self-fulfilling. Have you noticed that your words, my words, are not like this? You can't make things happen by your words. I mean, even when kids obey, rare as that might be, you say, go clean, and they don't clean like half, or kinda, or get distracted, and then you got to ride them a little bit more. But they actually clean. When that happens, they obeyed. But your words didn't cause it. There are other things going on, right? Like sometimes they actually want to obey and and bring honor to mom and dad or please you. And sometimes they're afraid of the spanking that would follow if they don't. There's a threat. So there are other things that are enacting what's happening. Not so with God. He doesn't need means. He doesn't have hands. He speaks and it's so. Peter tells us that it's unique because it's forever and everything else is temporary. You see verse 24? He says, quoting Isaiah 40, All flesh is like grass in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's nothing like God's word. All flesh 
which doesn't just mean all people, though that's true, but all creation, all human institutions, all stuff that, that we make. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's passing. It has a glory, but it's a withering glory. Everything has an expiration date. I have mixed feelings about buying my wife flowers. I bought some yesterday. I like her to be happy. Sure, they look pretty on our kitchen table. But we're watching this, these things die slowly. And we add water to, to prolong their death. <laughs> and it just seems to me like if they had vocal cords, they'd just go, Aah! you'd hear it. It would get louder as the, you know, day five. glorious they're beautiful we pay money for them and they die they die real fast and in the near east grass can grow up fast and turn brown in the same day you can have green in the morning and brown grass in the evening because of the sun it's unique there but of course we know it whether it takes a, a summer to burn up your lawn or you're smart enough to use Zero Escape and don't have a lawn, we know it gets burnt up. It's temporary. Not God's word. It's like himself. It's eternal and it's effective. Now, I said that Peter quotes some verses from Isaiah 40 here. It's verses 40. I'm sorry, chapter 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. Most scholars believe, though, that Peter is really pointing his readers and us by extension to more of Isaiah 40 than just the few verses he quotes. Let me show you. Turn to Isaiah 40 in your Bibles, if you would. This is worth boring down a layer and seeing what God's word has for us here. We see that Isaiah 40 begins with this theme, comfort Comfort, my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort, my people. This is written to a people who are exiled and they're under the tyranny of Babylon. Remember that? The Babylonian captivity. It's been a long time. It's coming soon that they'll be released and sent back home and, you know, they'll rebuild the walls with Ezra and Nehemiah. But they're not there yet. And God here is speaking comfort, comfort. Peter writes to exiles. Remember that? More than once, he calls the, the readers he's writing to exiles, strangers, wanderers, sojourners. He's tapping into what Isaiah was preaching, what God was preaching through Isaiah. Peter's writers, or readers are under Rome's heavy hand. They're experiencing persecution. They feel like outcasts in more ways than one. And Peter's tapping into the hope that they'll one day go home. God will fulfill his promises. So read on. Verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven grounds will become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. What? Well, on one level, in Isaiah's day, here's what's going to happen. 
the exiles are going to go home. And God's going to make it easy. No mountains in the way. They're flattened. No valleys to go through. They're raised up. The, the bumpy parts smoothed out. And God will just speak it. It'll happen. Yeah, but Luke 3 quotes this in reference to John the Baptist, doesn't it? A little guy named Handel wrote a little ditty about these words, didn't he? <laughs> Handel's Messiah, you've heard of it? Yeah, he attributed this like Luke did the time of Jesus. It was about Isaiah's day and more. That's how the Old Testament so often works. It's about one time and this other time to come. A time when the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together because God has spoken that it would be so. Then we get to those verses that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8. Now look at verse 9. Just a bit more here. Go on up to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, preacher of good news. Does that sound very New testament e to you? Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him, and his reward is with him. His recompense is before him, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. In Isaiah's day, that meant that the exiles would come home to Yahweh's shepherding arms like, like sheep. But don't forget that Jesus in John 10, he devoted a whole chapter to this thing that he's the good shepherd. He will lead his, his lambs. He will feed his flock. He will protect them. He will gather them in his arms. So now, get this. Back to 1 Peter. After Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, which has all this rich language about the coming of Jesus, right? Then Peter says in verse 25, And the word is the good news that was preached to you. That word that Isaiah 40 was talking about, that's the good news that you've heard and believed in and embraced and been changed by. So more than just giving us an Old Testament proof text to tell us that God's word is eternal and effective, that's what it looked like at face value, Peter instead is reminding us, his readers, that God's word is sure to the exiles in Babylon. They went home. God's word is sure about the one to come. He came. God's word is sure because they've heard this message preached. They've embraced it. They've been changed by it. They're a part of a whole new creation, a new reality. They've been born again into this new, amazing movement. Peter's reminding about the sure word of the one who is called the Word. John 1 says that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God's self-disclosure personified. Hebrews 1 tells us that God, long ago, and many times, in many ways... He spoke to our fathers by the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. 
Peter's tapping into all that. He's saying he has come. The promises have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. So there's no need to worry whatever is going on around you. His promises are sure. His word is forever. And it's effective. It's living and lasting. Third, the word, Peter says, is love-producing. It's love-producing. The word produces a new birth. The new birth produces love. So he says in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In fact, let's notice carefully the connecting words here, making this explicit Verse 22, having purified your souls for, see that connection word? A sincere brotherly love. And then verse 23, love one another since you've been born again. It flows from the new birth. It's because of your purification. Notice verse 25 at the end, the good news was preached to you. So chapter 2 verse 1 Don't forget that chapter headings and verse headings were added after. The apostles didn't write in these verse numbers and chapter numbers. And so sometimes if you only read the end of a chapter and the next day begin another chapter, you'll miss that this has a flow to it like it does here. The good news was preached to you, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. The new birth wrought love in you if you're born again, if you're in Christ. So there's no hope for the kind of love Peter's talking about apart from the new birth. Find it hard to love people? There's no hope to love them more, to love them better apart from the new birth, to love them the way God designed us to love apart from this radical transformation of like a a second birth, a new life, and not a second chance. But the other side of the coin is that there is no new birth where there isn't some hint of this kind of love. So we got to read this carefully. Does it describe us or not? Does 1 John describe us when it says, if a man doesn't have love for his brother, how does he have the love of God in him? Again and again and again, 1 John says the same thing. Now we have to ask what love is, because love is so overused and so watered down in our culture today. We love everything. We we love those tacos. Okay? I love my new microwave. Okay. I love Peyton Manning. Really? Love him? Like, does he know you? No, no. (laughs) We all want love. Maybe that's why we say it so much. Maybe that's why we. Say we love this and that so loosely. We want to be loved. Well, really, we want to be celebrated. What we'd like is to find someone who um, gets how amazing we are. And then to acknowledge just how smart they are by reciprocating some affection in return. We want a warm feeling. And the kind of love Peter's talking about here is affection and feeling, but not just affection and feeling, it's also actions. It's not just actions, it's also feelings, emotions, something you feel in your heart. He gives us four different descriptions of this love in verse 22. It's a sincere, 
brotherly love. And then he says we should love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. Sincere. Not faked. Not trumped up. Not mustered up. But real. He says our love should be brotherly. It's familial. It taps into this identity of the new birth. It relates Christians to God and back to us. He says it should be earnest. Love one another earnestly. This Greek word literally means outstretched or strenuous. It was a word that was used of long distance running. Picture a jaguar in full stride. That's this word, earnest, stretching, being stretched. Love is being stretched. Love is not easy. Just look at the cross. This word for earnest here, it's the same word used of Jesus when he was praying in the garden. He prayed earnestly. We should love earnestly. And our love should be pure. From a pure heart, he says, that is flowing naturally and flowing from a cleansed heart. So this love isn't flattery. It's not merely tolerating each other. It's not some sort of Pollyanna world where we pretend everything's okay, saying peace, peace in these relationships when there is no peace. Peter doesn't presume it'll be easy. He doesn't presume that nothing will ever go wrong. But love faces the wrong and the broken head on courageously and believes that it's bigger than the wrong and the broken. Peter goes on later in this letter to tell us what this love looks like, what it does. He doesn't tell us that here. So look at chapter 3 and verse 8 where Peter tells us what love should look like. He describes it like this, 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, that's part of love. Have sympathy, that's part of love. Brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, those are attitude issues. But do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, proactively bless, bless even when you get evil, when you get reviling. For to this you were called. Just like you were called to Christ. Just like you were called in the Spirit. Called unto reconciliation. Called unto forgiveness. Called under this glorious, imperishable inheritance. You were also called to suffer. And you were called to love. And so often, suffering and love go hand in hand. In chapter 2, he tells us what love is is not, or what we need to leave behind if we're going to love like God loves. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Malice, it's an old word. You probably don't say it much. You don't say, I feel malice today. It means evil feelings like anger and bitterness and resentment. Deceit, we know this well. It's lies, but not just lies. It's also speaking and acting with ulterior motives to others. Hypocrisy, of course, is being two-faced, being disingenuine, being sneaky. Envy is coveting, the Tenth Commandment. Wishing you had what another had instead of celebrating their haves. And slander speaking ill of someone to another, what Proverbs calls gossip, what Proverbs says God hates. 
Notice that these are all things that we hate in others, especially when we're the recipients of them. But these are things that often get a pass in our own hearts and uh, our own actions. We give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves. We ignore these things, but we see them so clearly in others. We judge and grade so, so severely in others. You have to notice, too, that these are sins that are generally culturally acceptable. Oh, we think they're grade A sins if we're the recipients of these things. But otherwise, these are things we all do, and so they're culturally acceptable. No politician has ever held a press conference, to my knowledge, to come out of the closet and say he has a problem with envy or malice. Everyone would go, yeah, okay, whatever. No, 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 really, I struggle with envy. And his friend would say to him, yeah, I do too. I covet all kinds. Man, I want that too. What's on your list? What's your covet list? Oh, I know. I want one of those too. We celebrate it almost. We Christians, as good as anyone. But Peter sees these as heinous enemies of love. So he says, put them away. Throw them away. Get rid of them. Cast them aside. Get them out of the boat. In fact, three times he uses the word all. Put away all malice, all kinds, all occasions, all deceit, all slander. Now, maybe these are words that are too foreign for you, odd sounding. You don't think about words like malice or slander or deceit or even the concepts. They don't really cross your mind unless someone else is doing them. But here's what Peter means. Christian, put away that record of wrongs that you maintain so meticulously. Put away that relational scorecard with your spouse. Put away the highlight reel of their sin against you. Quit playing it and replaying it over and over. Burn it. Put away that quiet voice that says, why does she get to have fill in the blank? Who are they that they think they should fill in the blank? Cast it aside. Get rid of, put away, throw away that inner lawyer, as Paul Tripp says, who's so persistent, persistent as he is illogical at defending ourselves. Put away the whitewashed tombs of gossip that's cloaked in prayer requests. I'm sure I've done it many, many times, more than I know, more than I care to admit. How sad to hijack God's good designs for our destructive purposes so that we feel better. Friends, do not talk to people about other people's problems through the means of a prayer request, go to that friend and pray for them. Pray for it on your own. Keep it to yourself. Bear that burden yourself. You're strong. You can do it. Put away that, that nursing of hurt feelings like their golems ring. Put away all those jokes that have stingers in the end. Put away those digs. You save a smile and a wink with your buddies. Put away that smug pity. That's, that's really pride in love's clothing. 
We are now children of obedience, chapter 1, verse 14. We are now leaving aside our old ways of ignorant, silly passions. We don't operate according to that economy anymore. He's given us a new compass. We've been born of him. We've been born to love. That's why we've been saved for a sincere and brotherly love. We're now part of a new family. And God doesn't like it when we aren't nice to his kids. We're like the word of God. It's living and it's life-giving and it's lasting and it's like our new birth. It's living and it's lasting. And so our love for each other should be alive and life-giving and lasting. It shouldn't be like the grass or the flower that's impressive for a day and withers and dries. Because Jesus loved us. Forgiven much, we must forgive much. His love for us is unthinkable. So forgive. Seventy times seven. And that means basically unendingly the gospel frees us to take our eyes off of ourselves and frees us to focus squarely on god and others the gospel frees you to not worry about what others think god has settled your account lastly the word is soul nourishing It frees us to love, and it also frees us to seek God. We're nourished by it. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I think the New American Standard has the right translation here. It says, not pure spiritual milk, but the pure milk of the word. Peter's talking about the word here. He has been talking about the word all the way through. Remember, that's the glue holding all this together. Often in scripture, God's word is likened to food or drink, and then going to God's word and reading and seeing is like eating, and that process is nourishing and satisfying. It's how we grow. That picture that Peter paints is is a beautiful one, isn't it? It's multi-layered. It's convicting. The multi-layer just sort of builds on the conviction that we should see this more in our lives than others. Like newborn infants long for a mother's milk, so we should long for and pursue and be nourished in God's word. Think of the desire that babies have for milk. I mean... They're desperate. They go a little longer than they think they're supposed to. And they, they, they do this cry with a chin shake. You've seen it, right? The tongue inside us, it curls up for some reason. Like it, it has one purpose, milk, and it's saying, feed me. Give me. That's all it's about. They're desperate. It's like a crack baby. But no crack milk. It's a milk baby. And that's natural. It's instinctual. They don't get a manual when they're born and go, what, what, where do I, what do I want? They know. They need it. Milk is not a fringe benefit. It's not an optional dessert. In fact, it's also singular, right? Isn't it? Milk is the singular food for a baby that's newborn. 
It's not milk and cookies or milk and mashed potatoes or milk and meat. It's just milk. And that's enough for them. God's word should be enough for us. It's all we need in a sense. We should long for the pure milk, Peter says. Pure. Free from additives, but also not watered down. In that day, like in any day, people would add water to try to sell more milk at a better return. You make more money. You water it down. I don't know why 2% costs the same as whole milk. It shouldn't. It's a bunch of water in there. Well, Peter's a whole milk kind of guy. And he says we should long for the whole milk of the word, the full strength of the word, the straight from the utter kind of milk. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll stay right here and we'll talk more about how we love each other and how we grow together in and by God's word. There's more milk here for us than we have time to drink of today. But let's wrap this up with verse 3. Peter says, long for this milk if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you? Have you been born again? Have you tasted of the new birth? Have you tasted of the sweetness of Jesus for you? Have you tasted of God's love? Have you seen his goodness in the cross and believed it and embraced it as your only saving hope? Why not? Why not? Taste and see the Lord is good. That's the Psalm, Psalm 34 that Peter's quoting here. Taste and see that he's good. Believe, receive, trust, call out, repent of your sins, and seek him while he may be found. Christian, you've tasted that he's good. Keep tasting. You've tasted that he's good. Don't forget it. Go again and again and again to his goodness. It's infinite. It doesn't run dry, this milk. Taste and see that he's good because you've been born from him and your sins are forgiven And baptism pictures all this. Baptism portrays this for us. It's an identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. But it's a a picture of cleansing as well. It's a picture of, of our account and our conscience being washed clean. It's a picture of our own spiritual death and resurrection. Old guy dead, new guy alive, new world all around me. We get to see that today. We get to celebrate others who will be baptized and remind ourselves as Christians of our own salvation and our own baptism and rejoice in the work of God 